Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. Don't forget in this episode, I might swear, Lucy might cry, and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Label Podcast's special Autism Awareness Week series. Uh, today we've got Helen on, um, and Helen is going to talk to us a little bit about uh, the work that she does. So Helen, why don't you just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about you? Thank you so much. Yes, my name is Helen Rotier and I am an autistic graduate student at the University of Illinois at Chicago in the United States. Um, my degree is a PhD in disability studies and my work looks at academic ableism and the experiences of autistic and neurodivergent scholars and students in higher education autistic epistemologies and ways of knowing and being, and more broadly looks at autistic online communities, autistic community and pride, uh, and why it's important for us to uplift autistic knowledges. I think that sounds really interesting. Fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot and, and obviously, you know, you talked about community and pride there. Is, is that, does that come from your own sort of autistic diagnosis and experience? Yeah, certainly. I think a lot about how I came into the community, including online spaces, particularly Twitter. I love Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. I'm just <laughs> at Helen Rotier. Uh, and also in in-person spaces where I've gotten to know and interact with other autistic people and really learn about what makes us unique, what I have in common with this group of people. And that has been incredibly affirming in my own experience to understand parts of myself that previously I had no understanding for and really just thought I was broken. Mm. I think Lucy and I have both said that um, from our own perspectives of our, our disabilities is that there is uh, definitely something very comforting to feel like you found your tribe, um, you know, whether it's people with the same disabilities as you or um, just the dis disabled community and disabled spaces in general where you feel kind of welcomed and, you know, able to access things. I mean, it's not, you don't get on with everybody within your community, but it's like a family. You don't get on all the time. There are people that you think, you know, they're just shouting for shouting's sake, really. Or I often think, you know, you have to pick your battles about the things you shout at sometimes. And ideas aren't always aligned. But when it boils down to it, if you need support, the amount of people, I mean, when we just set up this podcast, for instance, we've said countless times, haven't we, Alice, how we've sort of tentatively said, does anybody know of X, Y, Z? And then like we've faced 
thousand you know quite a few not a thousand but bigging myself up there but like <laughs> quite a few replies to go in yeah have you thought about doing it like this or you know oh yeah well, i know somebody and they can put you in touch and that that response is just amazing really and i mean i just reached out to helen on twitter myself after seeing a tweet about the academic work that she was doing and thought you know this is exactly the sort of thing we're looking for and it i mean twitter you know i love twitter as well it has been it is a great little kind of community if you find the right space in it. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, Twitter has been a huge part of my being able to thrive as an academic, as a multiply disabled person, as an autistic person, you know, connecting with people that I never would have dreamed of connecting with, you know, leaders in the field and leaders in um, disability pride is such a privilege and a gift of the social media era. So for all of its faults, I think social media and Twitter especially have a lot to offer to the disability community. Absolutely, I completely agree. And what sort of, you know, in your your academic studies, what, you know, what have you learned? What's the experience of the autistic community out there in social media and in online spaces? Yeah, so I'm very new to this work, and a lot of it is based on my own experiences and the experiences of my friends and colleagues and people close to me that are also navigating the autistic Twitter space. And I want to shout out um, my friend Josh um, is doing similar work uh, around how autistic people interact with autism research and researchers on Twitter. Um, and how that is another level of autistic agency and, and knowledge production and kind of speaking back to the violence that we encounter in some autism research. Mm. Um, so I think there's a lot of utility there as far as not just connecting people to one another, but providing them with a platform to connect and speak back to these larger systems about what we've experienced and, and what we're facing. And so, um, like everything, there are also issues within the community and within Twitter, and um, we get a lot of pushback about what about the autistic people that cannot use Twitter? Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So how do how do we speak with and not for them yeah yeah but the reality i think is is that we'll find we'll we'll keep finding new solutions that are more inclusive and um uplift more people um mm. to have that kind of platform mm. yeah i think it's it sounds like you know the work that you're doing is is really important as well as you know i think interesting um academically um, because I think, you know, one of the things that is definitely happening uh, on a global level is that those people finding their tribe is really changing and becoming a much more online experience for a lot of people. Um, and I think that's great because I think it breaks down a lot of barriers. But as you say, it does make new barriers for people with other kind of differences so an interesting place to explore isn't it's it? a double-edged sword isn't it if you're not careful as well it's um you know by by moving forward are you leaving 
some people behind as you move forward kind of thing. It's something that you've got to always... I mean, I, I use social media as a disabled person and it, half of it is to keep in touch with my friends because, you know, I... I I, but particularly during a pandemic, I've nobody's been able to get out much, and I think the pandemic maybe has leveled the playing field with you know um, social interaction, particularly online. You know, because before the pandemic, um, people with disabilities maybe couldn't get out much because of due to their conditions or whatever. But now everybody is in the same boat, and you know, um, isn't it? And I always thought whilst you know the first pandemic was happening isn't it amazing all these museums and stuff are doing virtual tours now and you know we're becoming more you know disabled people are having more stuff to do and and on in an online space they can go and visit a museum and things and there, there is a whole part of me that thinks i wish you know will this still be around once the pandemic is over and we all go back to quote unquote normal um or will it just sort of be, oh, that was a nice idea to get us through the pandemic. We won't be doing that again. Um, and I hope that in the first instant, you know, that it will be the, the, the first case scenario of let's keep going with this because it's a great way to innovate and not let's just put it in a cupboard and leave it <laughs> until the next time we have a pandemic and nobody can get out of the house. Um, but it's the same with the work from home spaces and things like that, you know, suddenly work from home has become the, the norm and all these people that were turned down for jobs who had disabilities and turned down for jobs because they needed to be in the office nine to five are suddenly going, oh, well, hang on a minute. I came for a job with you like three years ago and you said it wasn't possible. I needed to be in the office. It, so it, part of me is hopeful, but the other, the other side of me is like mm, very doubtful because I think that's your default setting as a disabled person, doubtful that, <laughs> you know. Um, but, I mean, what are your thoughts on how the pandemic has sort of, you know, do, do you think the pandemic has leveled the playing field? Or... I have similar feelings as you with, mm. you know, especially some of my work is focused on higher education settings and, how disabled students navigate higher education. And we've seen disabled students asking for remote work options, for online education options for years. Um, and we've had um, hashtags and articles like hashtag why disabled people drop out. Um, a lot of people have shared that the lack of flexibility just wasn't there, or the lack of flexibility was what caused them to drop out. There was no flexibility there. Now, when all of a sudden abled people need flexibility because of a global pandemic, suddenly it's possible, suddenly it's doable. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like overnight as well. Yeah, exactly. The office shot on a Friday and on a Monday morning, your laptop was delivered and you were told, this is where you work from from now, you know. Mm -hmm. Here's how to use Microsoft SharePoint. <laughs> it's uh, It was unbelievable how quick it was. Yeah, it was really something. And to I think that rightfully frustrated a lot of disabled people who had been asking for this type of flexibility and saying, you know, this would make it possible for me. I am able to 
complete this job with some accommodations, with some changes that wouldn't impact my performance. Um, or I would be able to complete my education if I could do it online from my home. Really, I, I agree that I'm, I'm hopeful but doubtful that we'll be able to keep up some of the changes that have been kind of enforced and informed by the pandemic. It would be nice to have the option to do virtual tours of museums that are up for me, like up four flights of stairs before you even get in. It'd be quite nice to be able to go and have a, like, or stately homes. We have a lot of stately homes here in the UK and I hate going to them and my mum loves them and I hate going because <laughs> I can only see like the sitting room and the kitchen and I'm like, if I mm. want to see a sitting room in the kitchen, I'll stay at home. Yeah, we went to the Vatican a few years ago and um, it was absolutely rammed, packed full of people yeah. and um, we were rushed through quite quickly and you know those uh that building is not very well lit there's not a lot of even lighting no. um <laughs> you're not given time to stop and let your eyes adjust to the different rooms before you look at all the paintings and the artwork so um yeah having a virtual tour of the vatican i mean i we got to um see the sistine chapel but that was mm. basically because as part of the vatican tour of the sistine chapel they shut you in there for 15 minutes and you're not supposed to talk. You're just supposed to be quiet and completive. So yeah. I was able to just stand and stare at a spot in the ceiling until I could see it. And then I was like, okay, I've seen that now. <laughs> We're done. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'd, I'd never go back and put myself through the crowd and that no, experience of exactly. it again. But if somebody said to me, you could do it online, I'd, yeah, in a heartbeat. And you could take your time. You know, mm -hmm. you've not got to like be stood next to somebody with a, you know, severe BO problem or <laughs> like, it's, there's a lot of benefits. It's not just access. It's, it's very beneficial. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Fingers crossed, eh? What would you say um, in terms of, you know, some of the changes that the world has seen from um, during the pandemic? What, what would you say is, has been the, the thing that's, made your life as a disabled person as an, a, a person with autism you know what's opened up the most for you do you think um definitely the the virtual experiences the virtual um gatherings and museum tours and um one thing that i and, and a lot of autistic and neurodivergent people struggle with is crowds um so having the opportunity to do something at my computer um, where I can kind of control my environment better. That's really nice. You know, even attending like virtual lectures. Last night I attended the Longmore lecture, which is done through the Longmore Institute on Disability Studies. And it was fantastic. And it was really nice that I could do it from my bedroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, instead of needing to, you know, fly somewhere or instead of needing to be in a packed room of people where there's background noise and other things that are going to be really distracting. Yeah, no, definitely. I don't think that we would have uh, gotten as far as we have done with this show if it wasn't for people just becoming so much more familiar with that, just dialing into things. So it is... I. I do hope that 
Yeah, as you say, it sticks around for a bit. Well, we would have never have met one another, would we, Alice, really? Because we've only ever met. People say to us, how long have you known each other? And we're like, uh, six months. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't actually met in person. So uh, I think when we do, um, it'll be it'll be a bit strange, really, not to speak to Alice through a little computer screen. It's... um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, can you put a box on your head and make it look like you're, uh, you've got a computer screen <laughs> around it, please? Uh, but no, I, I, you know, I would, we would, if it hadn't been for the technology, I would not have, we, we wouldn't have been able to get this podcast off the ground and I would never have met Alice. So, you know, people of a, of a certain age always bemoan technology and, oh, yeah, it's all, you know, it's all complicated and and but you put some you put them in my shoes in my position and I just spend a lot of time online and things and using technology and it's so helpful for for people with disabilities you know I can remember over here a few years ago the some I can't even remember who it was but a comedian uh poked fun at an advert that was on the tube and it said Alexa put the kettle on and he was like oh how why are you so lazy why can't you go put the kettle on yourself and of course he got a barrage of uh people with disabilities can't often reach the kettle and he was like and he had to say i'm really i'm really sorry i hadn't even thought about that um but yeah technology is brilliant i'm all for it i want to live like iron man (laughs) i do think it is worth saying that there are some people you know with uh, disabilities and mm. kind of needs for whom actually technology is not um, the most accessible thing. And I sort of, yeah. I've said before, as somebody with a visual impairment, I I find you're you're either really far one way or really far the other. Like you're using your you're sticking your finger in your coffee cup to work out where your cough the level of the coffee is. Yeah. So or you've got some fancy pants smart cup that tells you exactly <laughs> how much and your temperature and all of those things so i think you know i think it is important i can't imagine there's a many techno technophobes who are listening to podcasts <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe not. the handful that are you know you we do see Maybe you they've heard it in somebody's ears or something <laughs> <laughs> but what's you know what's your uh, uh, for people, you know, in the work that you're doing, and and for people with disabilities and and people with autism, do you do you see that kind of feedback that there are people who say actually, you know, the the put everything going online, everything being kind of distance, has are there people who are finding that more difficult and meaning that it's making things harder for them to access? Absolutely. So a a hallmark of autism and and neurodivergence in general is um, kind of clinging to routine and structure. Mm -hmm. And obviously the pandemic unsettled a lot of routine and structure. Um, Mm -hmm. I was in an apartment finally in Chicago, in um, Illinois, uh, where I was planning on living there until I finished my degree. So like four or five years. Mm. and I wasn't going to have to move, and that was a big deal for me. It was going to be really nice to have my space kind of settled, have all of my stuff where I want it, to be familiar with my space, Um, and then the pandemic happened, and I had to move home with my family because 
it wasn't it wasn't good for me you know for my mental health or for me in general to be isolated because I live alone um mm. it wasn't good for me to be kind of trapped in my apartment not going to the office not going to classes not seeing my friends and be completely alone so I had to move back to my parents house um and that was a huge shakeup and I'm really lucky that my parents are wonderful and I get along with my siblings and um, I'm I know that I'm welcome here and loved and I had a place to go but it was still difficult and it's yeah. difficult knowing that at some undetermined date in the future I'm going to move back and have to mm. readjust mm. Um, so I think the disruption to routine whether it's, you know, where someone's living or how they get personal support or work or school or recreation, all of those things are especially challenging for the autistic community. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's been the experience of a lot of students just across the world is having to suddenly, um, you know, pack up and move home. And I think it must be particularly difficult for the people who, you know, just started university, just started to get that freedom um, and that sort of sense of adulthood to then suddenly be back under your parents' roof. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to do it again if I was 18. You know, going home for the summer by <laughs> the end of the six weeks, I was climbing the walls like, I love you, mum, but I have to get out of here. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. That's definitely the point I'm at right now where <laughs> I get along with my family so well and I'm so ready to move back to Chicago. <laughs> yeah. I, I I live with my mom and dad, apparently. And I said to her, I think it must have been about just a long... Uh, we're in our third lockdown here in, in the UK, or hopefully coming to the end of it. And I said to her in about January, I was like, Mom, I love you dearly, but it would really be nice to be able to see some somebody other than your face. And she's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I think, you know, it's just very, very difficult, isn't it, really? You've sort of, you obviously, you talked about what you're studying at the moment, Helen, and your PhD. But, you know, what kind of brought you into this area of academics? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I went into undergrad in a psychology major um, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't certain that I wanted to be a psychologist, but I knew that I was interested in uh, neurodivergence and mental disabilities and mental illnesses broadly and had lived experience with mental illness at that time and had not yet been diagnosed with autism. And I explored that field and discovered research and really fell in love with research. And while I was applying to grad programs, one of my professors said, you need to narrow down what it is you're looking at. You need to decide what makes you tick, what you're passionate about, and focus in on that topic. I reflected a little bit and realized that in like six different classes across like 
the history of American education and my abnormal psychology class and my clinical psychology class. Every project that I had the opportunity to choose a topic for, I was writing about autism. Uh, So I was like, oh, this must be something that I'm interested in. Um, That, you know, coincidentally, I'm I'm choosing to focus on this Mm. group of people, this community. And um, I so I started looking into autism research as a career path and, and as a path for graduate school. And that was when my psychologist, when I had shared my plans with my psychologist, they said, do you think you could be autistic? And I had never thought about it. Um, But as I started thinking about it, it made a lot of pieces of my life and pieces of my experience with mental illness that hadn't made sense suddenly made sense. So that was a, I had a really like twisty, turny journey yeah a bit of a light bulb moment yeah absolutely a light bulb moment um and so that's how I got into the autism field and then really my experiences as a college student in undergrad um and I loved college but my experiences were not all positive because I really struggled with certain aspects of um, navigating higher education and navigating young adulthood. And so I wanted to use my experience to explore more into how we set these students up for success and mm. how we ensure that they have the opportunities and the supports they need. Um, and also that we have high expectations for what these students can achieve. Um, When I give presentations to educators, I always say it's best to default to high expectations and high support. And you can always, you know, back off the level of support a student needs if you realize that they're doing okay without that support. Yeah. But um, really focusing on those high expectations, believing that this student can achieve if they're given adequate support, which is true for Mm. all disabled students and all disabled people, that if they have the right supports um, in place, then they can do what it is they're dreaming of. I think it's true sort of beyond, it's it's a great mantra to live by, I think beyond the, the disabled and the academic community to say that if, whoever you are, if you've got the right support, whether it's safety at home or economic stability or, you know, the you're having your rights met and your voice heard mm-hmm. and you have that, you're getting that support and you're also getting the, there is that expectation of people to, you know, you will do the best you can and not, I think, I think part of the problem is, is that there is often a, uh, pressure of people um, doing the the best that they can is not always uh, in line with with everybody's expectations of you're succeeding yeah, and you're exactly. successful. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think you know in general it's it's a really nice mantra to live by. I really like that. I went to university and I it was an uphill slog. <laughs> I hated every minute, um, not because of 
what I was doing, what I what I was learning. What I was learning was something I was really passionate about. But I, I faced a lot of um, it's a very hostile environment, so I was bullied and picked on quite heavily, um, which set my anxiety up for the rest of my life. I think because that that you know that nagging voice at the back of your head. But again, the the and but the bullying, a lot of the bullying came from people who were lecturers and people who were I would have gone to for support they you know I was told I don't, I don't even you know I don't even know why you're here because you're not tough enough to survive the media industry you're never going to get a job you know you have to be tough you have to be ruthless I was the first one of our cohort to get a job working for the BBC so what do you know um that kind of mic drop thing but um and I do think that if I'd have been fully supported and, you know, people could understand the whole struggles I had as, as a disabled person trying to get on, a, trying to negotiate a film set, for instance, I felt I had a lot of pushback when we were doing film shoots because I couldn't always attend the, the you know, the, the setup because of my wheelchair. You know, we don't cope well with mud and freezing cold temperatures. Um, and so everybody thought I was lazy and it wasn't that I was lazy. It was that I physically couldn't get there, but there was a lot of, um, misunderstanding. So I think, I think disabled students need that under, first of all, you need understanding of this is what my needs are. You need to have a sense of being heard and a sense of being supported because otherwise you just feel abandoned. And I held on to that university course, the skin of my teeth to get because I was not going to give in I was not going to give up I was not going to give in but there were times when I wanted to and I was so close to saying do you know what it's not worth it I'm going to go I'm, I'm out um and I'm so glad I didn't but if I'd have been fully supported I would have had no problem at all you know it's um it makes me feel quite sad when I look back at my university years because I think to myself you know if, if things had have been just even a smidge different maybe i would have been a lot happier and got more out of the experience than i did personally i think one of the things that's quite difficult um in terms of academics and and the support that you need to engage in education is that particularly when you start getting to you know university level and postgrad level it's the the work you're doing um and the the level of work that you need to produce is so unlike anything you've ever had before that it's almost you don't know until you're in it what support you're gonna need and yeah. what you're going to find difficult so yeah it must be quite interesting for you with the research that you're doing talking to people um you know and learning uh, uh, do, have you found yourself going oh i wish i'd thought of that and i wish i'd known that <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, to Lucy's story, I think there's there's so much there that I encounter um, frequently from disabled students and especially kind of the bullying and harassment from lecturers and professors and the people that you're supposed to rely on for that support and understanding because there are such entrenched ideas about who belongs and who doesn't belong and how disability doesn't belong in these spaces. 
Mm. Um, something that is a, a constant thread through all of the work that I do. Um, and that's what I mean when I refer to academic ableism is this yeah. exclusion and discrimination of disabled ways of knowing and being, um, mm. which we know are valuable, um, but which are not valued in the academy. Yeah, it's those um you know the basically the assumption is that the disabled experience in whatever sector it is whether it's your ability to conduct scientific research or whether it's your feedback as a you know humanities student if you happen to yeah. have a disability it's your in your insight and experience is is invalid because of your because you're an invalid because you're a disabled person yeah and therefore not able to cope it's well i think ableism in in you know you look at medical ableism and i, I read a read a uh, article about medical ableism and how a very high percentage of doctors will sit you know gps and doctors would see somebody in a wheelchair and think we had less of a quality of life just because we have to negotiate things differently, which that in itself just enraged me. I was reading the headline. I was like, for God, you know, um, it, there is nothing that irritates me more than ableism. I'm sure I can speak for all of us here, but it's just, it's just, uh, it's not, it's not nice for anybody involved, really. To, to a certain extent, those people's attitudes, the ableist attitudes, give me fire to keep going. It's almost like, it's, a, it's such a sad thing to say, but it's almost like I'm used to having to battle people like you to get to where I want to be. And, and I so think that's right. And I, I think it's really awesome that you, you know, when you've told yeah. the story about how you fought through uni and stuff like that, I think that's brilliant. But I, I think that your experience is the minority. I honestly yes, believe that yeah, most yeah. disabled people are just run down by yeah. it i you know i dropped out of a phd after uh i was part-time i should have been doing it for four or five years 18 months in and i just i i killed myself trying to do a literature review and i just i, I couldn't push no. myself any further and yeah. i wasn't getting the support and there'd been some personal uh you know stuff going on in my personal life and i just i just decided i had to put my mental health first and as much as I wanted to, you know, pursue my academics, it I wasn't getting the support. I feel as though I let those ableists win because mm. I, but, and it's hard. I try really hard not to think like that and think, actually, I made a really brave decision to put my mental health first. But it does feel a bit like I lost a battle. And I think as well, on the flip side, you saying, you know, good on you for for fighting to get through university i do wonder whether me fighting to get through university has now affected my mental Scarred health you. Yeah. Like, yeah and whether that is is having an because of my stubbornness to not give in <laughs> and not give up like any other any other person would have gone lucy they've thrown a block of wood at your head just leave it just go home and leave it you know it's not it's not nice. You're not doing yourself any favors. Stop putting yourself in this position where you think, no, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. It's fine. I'll keep going. It's fine. I'll have them throw stuff at my head. Um, 
which actually happened. So I have to wonder whether that stubbornness to keep going has made me go, actually, yeah, but I'm wary of every other situation now. I wonder whether if I'd have just gone, yeah, do you know what, I'm, I'm out, bye, whether I would be a much more confident and less scarred person. So I think there's flip sides of both coins there. You know, do you carry on and scar yourself or do you give up and think I've let them win? You know, I don't think anybody comes out a winner, even if you hold on as tight as you can. What do you think, Helen? Yeah, I agree that it's, you know, we know that the current, the way education and higher education is set up doesn't work very well for anyone. And then that's exacerbated if you're a person with a disability. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's not an affirming uh, experience or, you know, some people have positive experiences because of their situation, but the the mechanisms that support higher education are meant to run you down, and especially graduate education, I think, is it's meant to um to weed out the people that can't tolerate it. And yeah. that's not to say that those people have less valuable contributions to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. There is, um, I think, an attitude, a culture amongst uh, graduate, postgraduate education of you've got to deserve to be here. And if you can't prove your worth, then you you shouldn't be here. Yeah. It's that snobbery, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It's toxic. It's mm. I think it's really toxic. It's absolutely toxic. And um, and it affects everyone in different ways. And, and disability is just an, an added layer of difficulty. And I want to go back to what you said, Alice, about you don't know what support you need until you're in it. Mm. That was absolutely my experience. And I didn't, um, I, I would have qualified to receive accommodations when I was an undergrad. And I went through the initial registration process for accommodations three times while I was an undergrad. And I could never get past that point because I didn't know what I needed. Mm. I didn't know what kind of supports would actually be useful. Mm -hmm. And so I never got any support, which that wasn't the right way to go about doing my my undergraduate experience. Mm. Um. But that's what ended up happening. And then finally, when I started grad school, I knew I was like, okay, I'm going to need to have accommodations um, to get through this because it's going to be that much harder. And now I know a little bit about what I would have benefited from when I was in undergrad, but it's all different again. Mm. So I mean, that is kind of the to, to kind of come full circle. That is one of the, the great things about places like Twitter and, and disability Twitter and those kind of communities because you can share your experience and your ideas and there are people out there who are able to go this is what I found helpful this is what I did you know or we had um, Ira Kramer who is an autistic science person on Twitter on as part of this series as well and they were talking about how they on a daily weekly basis have people going oh my god that's what that is that's the thing that I have and I didn't know that that was what it was called or I didn't I couldn't name it and that is one of the 
most amazing things about that kind of online community is that you're suddenly not the only person to have experienced things and that not only helps I think for your mental health and makes you feel like part of a community but it also it's practical you know you can take that knowledge out there and go well this is what this person found helpful. Yeah that's absolutely true and that's um, something I'm striving to do in part of my practical and, and student affairs work is that I am the student coordinator of the Chicago Coalition for Autistic and Neurodivergent Students. And I facilitate a group of um, like 12 to 30 students. We meet twice a month. We've been meeting online because of um, the pandemic. People share what they're struggling with. And then other people chime in and say, I also struggled with that and this is what I did that was helpful or I also struggled with that and I tried this and it didn't work. Mm. I'm really sharing those experiences and a lot of times it's just sharing, you know, I've had an experience of feeling imposter syndrome and then someone says, what is imposter syndrome? And so we try to explain it and then the person who asks the question goes, oh, I definitely experienced that. (laughs) I didn't know there was a name for it. When I found out what imposter syndrome was, I was like, that's what it is. It's not, it's not, (laughs) I'm not going bonkers. Um, But I get it all the time. Every day I get imposter syndrome. It's ridiculous. Um, But when somebody said, you do, it sounds like you've got imposter syndrome. I was like, what is that? Is that another, have I got to take another tablet for that? Now is that another tablet I've got to take? (laughs) But like, no, no, it's, but this is what it is. I was like, oh then yes, it is. That's what I have. (laughs) um... Yeah. So it's a way of like, it's, we're really fortunate in, in a city like Chicago that there is a, you know, a small but mighty group of us that Mm -hmm. are all in, in college or graduate school or professional school and, or young, young professionals um, that get together and, and have these conversations which is really nice. And that I think disability Twitter and and specific disability Twitter communities have the same impact, um, but connect us across distance and um, age and other experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well with with the podcast, our aim is, you know, to help people who understand conditions a little bit more. So whether you're able-bodied or disabled, you you know, you may, we had some feedback last night, actually, Alice, from a listener who said, I'm learning so much from, from you two. We've not been doing it for very long either. Um, <laughs> but it, I think, I think it doesn't hurt to learn about other people's, you know, conditions and disabilities and things like that. Just, just in general, really, I think it benefits everybody. Well, and I think excluding people with disabilities from spaces like academics means you're missing out on the chance to get those voices and hear those views and so you never learn and you never broaden your thinking you know if you continually push out people with disabilities from education by putting barriers in front of them and uh you know not giving them the support that they need then you're never going to see what not only what that individual disabled person can achieve, but also you're never going to be able to 
when the next disabled person comes along go well what can i do to see what this person can do instead yeah and other thing as well it's like just if you're not careful you're putting yourself in an able ableist bubble and then when you do go out to the wider wider world once a university and college and all that kind of stuff is over and done with and then you meet a disabled person you end up like looking at them like they're an alien because you're like what what do i what do i do what do i how, how do i communicate that kind of thing and it that perpetuates the staring and the and the weird questions that i'm constantly asked whereas if you i think educate like i always say education is the best the best thing for disability really because if you start at a young age and get them used to sort of seeing disabled people i think there must be a vast i was thinking about this last night when we were I was sort of thinking about this interview. Some people may go to university and come out of university having never encountered a disabled person in their life. And so they get stuck in their ways. And that is where your ableist views come from because you've, you've never experienced it. You've never, you don't have friends who are disabled. They're maybe not a member of your family who are disabled. And so when you do, you're like, uh, what? Uh, what is it what is this it's just the difference between ignorance and knowledge isn't it yeah and, you know you can be ignorant without necessarily meaning to if you don't ever get in you know contact with or experience things that educate you and and make you know and learn other things yeah and i think as a society and in media and in our education system without realizing it we are actually teaching ableism in the ways that we talk about and represent disability in the ways that we see people with disabilities treated um you know more broadly in society and also in the ways that we don't see people with disabilities like you were saying if you've never encountered a disabled person then you don't expect a disabled person to be able to go out in public or go to college or go, you know, different places. If, if there's yeah. no access, then there's no representation. And then people say, well, why do we need access? Because there are no disabled people mm -hmm. here. Yeah, it doesn't mean to say they never will be because I'm well, an adult. <laughs> and, and the, the issue is the, you know, it's a chicken and egg situation is well there are no disabled people there because they can't get in well they they can't get nobody's trying to get in so they're not changing the access yeah they're not there because they can't get in that's the problem like yeah. it's interesting you know you you talking about representation is something we've touched on with um some other people this week as well is is talking about what autism and neurodivergence looks like um for the general public and I think that a lot of the general public do have that idea in their head of autism and neurodivergence being that hyper-intelligent, very scientific, very clinical, not very socially capable, not very emotional. If that's the image that's coming out um, to the public, you know, it quite often people with autism and, and neurodiversity on film and TVs, they're, they're very linked to the academic sphere because that's the kind of the personality and character traits that they're given um whereas you know actually it sounds 
like from what you're saying and, and the experience of lots of people that you see online that people with neurodiversity actually find it really hard to engage in that kind of high level of education because there's not the support there. Yeah, and I mean, the point of higher education is to um, elevate these certain ways of knowing um, and neurodivergence rejects these certain ways of knowing it diverges and says mm. what if we know in this other different um, yeah. unique uh, exciting exceptional way and also what if we what if we learn and know in these unique mundane ways mm. and really exploring that and yeah academia is is hostile to everyone but especially to disabled people and especially to people with any kind of mental disability that affects how they learn and think and know and I think you know the one of the things that we've really seen um, with people we've been talking to this week have been a lot of people talking about having experiences of mental illness and having mental health difficulties quite often people seem to have been saying it sort of before they've come across their autism diagnosis they've had problems with anxiety before perhaps realizing that the anxiety was linked to the way that they experienced the world through their neurodiversity but you know I you sort of want to say well of course there are people who are who are having problems with their mental health if they're having these walls thrown up and they're being rejected everywhere they turn and you know I mean there's nothing I think that is that can be more degrading and offensive than being told that the way you think like the way your mind functions is wrong yeah 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 I absolutely agree with that and that was absolutely my experience too was I had all of these mental health diagnoses that some of them made sense and some of them didn't quite make sense like one of the things I do is I write lots of lists and I, I'll write the same list over and over and over. Um, and it turns out that's a way of like my my body and brain connecting and grounding myself and stimming. Um, but for a long time, um, doctors thought it was because I had obsessive compulsive disorder I knew and, you were gonna say that. and needed the list to be perfect. Yeah. But I didn't have obsessions I only had the compulsion part mm, um fine. so I was like this doesn't make sense to me um and doctors were like it doesn't quite make sense to us but it's the best we've got because yeah that's this is the other problem with autism representation is that it's always white men men mm -hmm. yep we're finding that a lot this week aren't we Alice yeah, yeah. I'm actually, I'm really gutted that we've somehow managed to orchestrate this whole week and we don't have uh, very much representation of people of colour in the show, although we are almost exclusively women um, <laughs> on the uh, who are coming on the show, just in general. So we're very, <laughs> very pro-feminist. We're, work we're working on the uh, person of colour, though, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> Slowly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so of course no one thought you know no one thought Helen can be autistic because 
I was a woman and I was, I, I enjoyed school and I was a rule follower. And it turns out some of those things like being a strict rule follower and and taking rules very literally and Mm -hmm. seriously is actually an indication of autism, (laughs) but because it's not a quote unquote problematic behavior, because Mm. it's like falls in line with what adults are expecting yeah. you to do as a child yeah it doesn't register as like oh maybe there's something here and and I think that's you know a thing that you you see in a lot of just across the board with difference in general is that if it suits the societal kind of uh pressures and expectations and you know meets those the norm yeah, well, and, and those, I was going to say, you know, kind of feeds into what white men like most, which is usually money. Um, people tend to, um, people tend to go, well, there's, that's not, a, that's not a problem. So we're not going to include that as part of our diagnostic criteria or as our list of things that can be a, a signifier or symbol of, you know, symptom of something because it works in our favor. Yeah, that's definitely true. You know, going back to talking about the the difference, and I we know that um, women are often not diagnosed uh, with autism, and you know we do know that it is a very kind of white, um, or or seen to be a very white issue. I suppose that's again one of the other great things about the online community is that it can be much more. Uh, diverse I think because it's a a space that is open more to people yeah I think and one of the things I like to say is there's this whole conversation around self-diagnosis and and self-realization um outside of the kind of the medical complex identifying and understanding oneself as autistic and what I like to say is that you are self-diagnosed but you're community affirmed so you find like in the community that your your experiences line up and that you are part of this community because of who you are and, and the ways that you think and interact and process things. I think that's another great element of the online spaces is that people can kind of test the waters and see do these experiences make sense with my experiences? And I still, even as someone who medical professionals have said, yes, we think you're autistic, still have a lot of doubts um, because I was diagnosed when I was an adult and because I don't fit certain criteria that are like stereotypically thought of as autistic traits. But when I'm in that community space and someone says something that I relate to so deeply that's when I know like I've found my people Mm. and I have this connection and that it's okay for me to claim this identity yeah no I I think that's brilliant and I think that that's that's something that a lot of people that I think resonates with a lot of people is that again it's it's just kind of not being seen by the medical community or the able community uh, or non-disabled community and feeling seen by 
your online community and you know people with disabilities feeling seen is a good word for it yeah like feeling feeling seen and feeling validated and and feeling accepted in this community feeling belonging yeah definitely what are your plans for further research into this area what do you what do you think you're going to find what do you sort of what do you hope to achieve is there anything that you found that is really exciting you that you're gonna pursue a little bit more maybe yeah so in my master's thesis i looked at facilitators and barriers of autistic and neurodivergent students experiences and found that um, the academic accommodations are a great facilitator of academic success and satisfaction but come with so many barriers related to documentation and disclosure or negotiating um, accommodations with professors and mm-hmm. um, just the the emotional and, and mental burden of navigating the accommodations process and fighting for one's accommodations because not every professor, unfortunately, is you know, willing to accommodate a student with disabilities yep. <laughs> because of what you were saying about, you know, perceptions that the student is lazy instead mm-hmm. of just yeah. needing support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm really interested in kind of that narrative and that thread to untangle and look at how we can change the accommodations process or move towards more radical access where accommodations are no longer necessary because we're already making changes and adapting the situation to what our students need. Um, So that's one piece that I'm interested in. And then also definitely doing more work around autistic epistemology, what it means for autistic students and scholars and activists and community members to create knowledge. Mm. And especially how that takes place on Twitter. Fabulous. That's really interesting. And um, hopefully that there are lots of people listening to this who are following us on Twitter. Yeah. Um, And we will, of course, be, um, you know, uh, linking your account and stuff with this episode. But are you, you know, where can people go to contribute to your research? Where can people go to, to find out more? You can definitely find me on Twitter. That's probably the best place. Um, my DMs are open um, always, so um, which is how I um, got this opportunity yeah. and <laughs> how I um, can. I'm always happy to connect with people who are interested and share what I'm finding. And I'm slowly starting to have my first few publications come out. Um, that's exciting. Yeah, that's very exciting. And and then my website is linked on my Twitter, but my website is just Helen Rotier, R-O-T-T-I-E-R, um, dot wordpress.com. Gotta love those WordPress sites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, WordPress. Yeah. Uh, uh, no. Helen, I wish you all the success with your studies. It's been lovely uh, to speak to you uh, today. 
just before you go, is there anything else that you sort of wanted to kind of flag up? Anything um, you think that we missed today? Oh, yeah, if we missed anything. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, this was really wonderful. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Oh, well, thank you for coming on, Helen. It's been really appreciated. It's re- it sounds, your PhD sounds fascinating. Really interesting. It's actually been really nice to talk to to somebody, uh, you know, in that university academic setting about what I went through. And God, yeah, you're not the only one. <laughs> you know, it's not just you. So, well, and it's really nice to see somebody in academics who's kind of fighting to change that. You yeah. know, you're. I mean, it's it's great because you're using your academics, your intellect, your knowledge, your interest and passion to actually you know, raise awareness and campaign for change, but also, you know, you're identifying proactive, practical things that can change. And that's, that's always the big thing, I think, is people will say, well, we would, but we don't know how to do it. And, you know, what you're, you're coming out with is, is going to be able to do that. So, um, yeah, make sure you give us a shout as and when you get your doctorate. (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Helen. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Great. We'll have to have you back on and uh, we'll celebrate somehow. Thank you ever so much for coming on, Helen. It's been a real, real joy. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Labeled Podcast. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on social media at Labeled Podcast. Uh, thanks go to our editor, Adam Hall. Our music composer, Maisie Crunden, and our graphic designer, Sarah Coley. We'll We'll see see you next time. time.